one year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I want to try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the fur boom. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Trappers love being trappers in a positive way. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Herb Lennon Game Magazine. Instruction from Perigo Gorman. Herb Lennon's articles, the Herb Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. Alright, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet that's working ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got variables to change the judge, you got bog trap. They start talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get any better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like a sheer. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Back in the fur shed. This is Trapping Today. Jeremiah Wood here. Thanks for listening in. We are brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Traps, snares, baits, lures, books, DVDs, and everything else you need to get started on the trap line. Go to Cotsbros.com. On X Maps, turn your phone into a GPS on the trap line. Mark your trap locations, run tracks, check out the latest aerial imagery, and get landowner information to find places to trap. Use the promo code T-R-A-P at onxmaps.com for 20% off. You're going to use this app for so many things you never even thought of. And finally, Moyle Mink and Tannery. What are you going to do with your fur that you catch this year? Send it to get tanned by the professionals. It's a low fur market right now. If you're just getting started, especially you want to preserve those memories, the first animals that you catch, get it tanned. If you've been doing this for a long time, but you're not really willing to take a chance, at uh, throwing your furs in the market and seeing whatever's going to happen. We get a lot going on in the market right now, and I'm going to provide an update here uh, at some point pretty soon. But um, long story short, it's still full of uncertainty, so we don't know what exactly is going to happen. And you could take the gamble like I did when I sent my fur out to auction last year and got $7.60 average on my Martin. This year, all of my Martin went to get tanned. Moil Mink and Tannery does an awesome job, a professional job, and they do it in a very timely manner at a reasonable price. So go to moyle.net, M-O-Y-L-E, and check them out, and let them know I sent you. Thank you. All right, tonight's episode, I think we're going to take a little step back and get into the tip, shout out, book, and an ask. I have big news on the book front, so we're going to get into that and spend probably the majority of the episode talking about the book a Fall Fur Hunt in Maine, an 1859 trapping expedition in the North Woods written by Manly Hardy in 1910, set in 1859 prior to the Civil War, and reprinted and re uh, made available to the public by me, Jeremiah Wood, in 2021. Uh, today, it's live on Amazon as I record this. So um, 
I would very much appreciate for you to go and get a copy. It is only $10. It's $9.95 on Amazon. It's 109 pages long, so it's a fairly quick read. You're going to be fascinated by all the, the old information and uh, the adventure on the trap line that these guys had. So I'm going to actually give you a sneak peek in tonight's episode on uh, some of the details. We're going to read a little bit of the book just to kind of get you. I want to get you hooked. I want you to buy this and, uh, and get on there and Amazon leave a, leave a review. I don't have copies in the Trapping Today store yet because this, like I said, brand new. No copies available. I have just ordered author copies, and I'm going to probably get those in uh, probably 10 days to two weeks is pretty typical for the printers. So uh, for it, don't don't use that as an excuse to put it off, though. Get on there and go to Amazon, 10 bucks. If you're a Prime member, you're going to get free shipping on that. So it's, I think, a really affordable book, and uh, don't, don't wait and say, oh, I'm going to get this whenever it comes available on the store. Um, get it now when it comes available on the store you still want to support me on the store get another copy and give this one to your friend so yeah so we're going to get into uh, let's start with a tip I want to go back to what we talked about with Kirk DeKalb on last week's episode Uh, that was just some pretty amazing information to me it's something that I'm not really familiar with in terms of and, and I don't have a background ever thinking about it something brand new how animals react to your sets in relation to the potential positive and negative ions that are being emitted from those traps. Uh, in put shortly, the magnetic field. And Kirk talked about uh, details associated with that. Tonight's tip is if you have a smartphone, there's a very good chance that you have a built-in magnetometer on your phone, in your phone, Uh, This is the same device that's used to power the compass on most smartphones. And so you can easily download an app on your phone that is free in almost all cases that I've seen. Now, Kirk recommends one called Tesla Bot. That is available for Apple for iPhones. Uh, I don't believe it's, I can't find it on the uh, Google Play Store, so I don't think it's available for Android. But uh, if you go on Apple or Android, there are tons of different apps that you can download if you just uh, type in the search box magnetometer. That's magnet, O-M-E-T-E-R. And you, you download one and see how it works for you. Just check out the ratings. You know, they're pretty simple. Basically, it just allows you to use your phone to measure the magnetic field in the vicinity of the phone. You turn that thing on, get it going, and you hold it next to the trap and whatever particular uh, part of the trap you want to test. Uh, Kirk would recommend like in, in body grip traps to test the, the, the middle of that trap because he says if, if there is a lower magnetic field in the center of the trap, that's going to encourage animals to move through that trap. It's going to just make them more comfortable, I guess, moving through the trap as opposed to feeling nervous about it, uh, sensing that magnetic field. Now, a couple of interesting points associated with this. The, the first thing is you are going to want to compare this to the baseline of the Earth's magnetic field. And all these measurements are going to be in micro Tesla, which is just, a, I guess, a measurement of electricity, electrical energy, or whatever. 
Um, I, I don't fully understand this stuff myself. I'm still trying to figure it all out, but the earth's, uh, the earth's micro Tesla, kind of the baseline of the earth's magnetic field varies between 30 and 65 micro Tesla. And that varies based on where you are uh, on the planet. This magnetic field is stronger as you get toward the poles, uh, like the North Pole or the South Pole, and it's weaker near the equator. And Kirk says that the, uh, the closer you are to the equator, the more of an impact that the, uh, the difference in magnetic field, uh, it, that the, uh, the magnetic field is sort of going to impact whether animals are going, are going to notice it or avoid your sets. So, uh, it has something to do, and if you check out his book, which I mentioned last episode, An Outdoorsman's Greatest Discovery, you're going to notice that he uh, he talks about the impact of uh, the the moon, like when you have a full moon, uh, that's going to have a huge impact on uh, the micro Tesla measurement, the the effect, the pull of the Earth Earth's magnetic field, and how that impacts uh, the measurement at your traps based on, of course, the shape and the type of the metal, the amount of carbon in the steel. Um, I think he does a good job of just simplifying this really complex uh, topic. But uh, weather and uh, full moon and that sort of thing has more of an impact in near the equator. So you're not going to have as much of an impact as you get, um, as you get up further north, closer to the poles. Um, but I don't know that we fully have have measured all this stuff and tested it because it's such a new concept. And a lot of scientists, although we know that most animals have this cryptochrome and are able to sense magnetic fields, uh, th- that's about as far as it's gone. There hasn't been a whole lot of research that's been able to prove or disprove different theories associated with it. So I think the coolest thing would be if a bunch of you guys downloaded this app on your phone and started testing your traps and taking measurements of traps like side by side different traps seeing which ones how, how they test if you're out on the trap line uh, get out there and make a couple sets side by side with traps that have or maybe not side by side but maybe in the same general area maybe 20 feet away 30 feet away whatever um, and take take measurements and and test this out see if one particular trap uh, does happen to outperform another and to be able to determine whether in fact the the magnetic field of that trap is actually impacting your success rate i think that would be pretty awesome uh it um this could go one a, a couple of different ways number one you could find out that there is no difference that you know difference in micro tesla readings on different traps isn't affecting your catch rate and that's fine now if your traps are underwater it's not going to matter that uh, the water negates um, any of this uh, effect but this could go another way you could find that there is an entirely new variable that you were never considering before that if you can uh, control for it you could potentially increase your effectiveness as a trapper so I think there's a whole lot to be learned in this whole field of uh, of of this discovery that 
that Kirk has laid out. Now, another really interesting fact to consider, and Kirk mentions this in the book as well, and I encourage you to buy the book. It's really short, but it, it's got a lot of great information packed into not much text. It's like 60-something pages long. But interesting fact, you can look this up online. Why is it, this is not the fact, the fact we all know as trappers, that bobcats are not trap shy. A bobcat or lynx, you can set bear traps down on the ground or the snow and they will step right on the pan of the trap. They don't they don't seem to be trap shy at all. And and I've always thought, well, they're just dumber, you know. Why are the coyotes are smarter and cats are dumber? Here's an interesting fact. Cats do not contain cryptochrome. They they do not have that molecule that's used for magnetoreception. So maybe we could flip everything that we thought on its head and say, well, maybe the reason that cats are not trap shy is because they can't sense that magnetic field like fox and coyotes can. Interesting stuff, huh? So check that out. Get, get the, the book and get yourself a, uh, I'll provide a link in the book uh, to the book in the uh, show description here, the show notes, and uh, get yourself hooked up with the magnetometer on your phone and do some testing. I'd love to get some feedback from you guys. Now for tonight's shout out, I wanted to give a shout out to Grinwald Fur and Wool Company's YouTube channel because these guys have done something new this year and it is, uh, it's really awesome for, at least for me and a couple other trappers, actually Cole Porter told me about it initially. I didn't even know they were doing it. Uh, they did it toward the beginning of the season they started and they've been doing this all season long they are going on uh, live on Facebook live and then putting it up on YouTube live streaming their fur buying uh, at different routes different places that they're stopping to buy fur uh, all throughout the the country so you can actually go on the the channel that GFW is the channel name for Grinwald Fur and Wool and you can watch, like, you know, if you're bored and you got nothing going on or you're just curious what prices are looking like. And more so than just getting numbers, like actual uh, information around why certain furs sold for certain prices, uh, that it, you can pick up some really valuable information. So it's just kind of like the computer shooting right at the, the guy that's buying fur. And he's looking, he'll look over and kind of mention a few things. And then he'll talk to the people that are, you know, he'll be like in a trailer that's set up to, to buy fur. And people, it's kind of like a drive through People drive up and they'll put their fur on the counter and he'll pull it inside the trailer and he'll show grading it and sorting it out. It, they work super quick. Um, and they'll, they'll sort it out into different piles and, and look at the fur quality and the size and everything. And then they'll give the, the guy a price. And the guy can either accept the price or take his fur back. Most people tend to just take the price, it's amazing how many people, they don't argue, but I think they know the market is the market. And um, Grinwald is not paying super high, but they'll buy anything. And it's a place to, to move your fur if you need to move your fur. So it, 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 it's been really informative, and I just wanted to give them a shout out because it's pretty awesome to, to share information like that with us trappers and give us a little more perspective on what goes on on their side of things. So... Grinwald Fur and Wool, thanks for doing that. Hope you continue and hopefully more people start to show more of what goes on. I think it'd be cool if a 
a trapping supply dealer or a lure maker or somebody did something similar, like just, uh, you know, put out a, some raw video footage of, of them just going about their day and doing their th- stuff and, and working on different projects just to, to see how it all goes down. It's cool stuff, in my opinion. All right. Uh, the book and the ask. We're going to do do those together. Uh, you know what the ask is. I want you to buy this book. I want you to buy it not only to support trapping today, but to uh, spread the word, get this information out. And I know you're going to like it. I know you're going to enjoy it um, because, because I absolutely loved it. So I'm going to just get into the introduction. Um, this is something that, that I, I wrote at the beginning of the book. It says, Manly Hardy was an outdoorsman, hunter, fur buyer, trapper, and naturalist. It's safe to say he knew more about wildlife in the Maine woods than anyone else in his day. Born in 1832 and venturing through the woods prior to the Civil War in a vast territory with no laws and little help if things went wrong, Manly learned to be tough. Through the fur business in Brewer, Maine, which his father established and Manly took over as his father aged, he saw the bulk of the fur that was produced in the Northeast for many decades. This also provided the opportunity to converse with wilderness trappers and learn more about their experiences. Despite some health problems, Hardy spent a considerable amount of time in the woods in his early years. Though many men of the time could claim such experience, few wrote about it to the extent that he did. Through his journals and stories he wrote later in life, Manly Hardy provided us with a clear view of life in the woods in those early years. From rigorous backcountry travel and early trapping techniques, to building cabins, encounters with Indians, and the unpredictable presence of lumbermen in this great unpopulated territory. In a fall fur hunt in Maine, Hardy explains in detail his 1859 trapping trip with Rufus Philbrook in the Cockmagomic region of northern Maine. The young men journey to a remote country by foot and canoe with only the supplies they can carry to supplement a couple months living off the land. They build a cabin, set trap lines through six townships, and brave some pretty challenging weather. For the northern fur hunters back then, it was all just part of the job description, nothing special. For us today, it's something interesting and unique and provides a window into survival and trapping methods, toughness, and ingenuity that most of society can no longer comprehend. Thanks to Hardy's writing, their experiences are preserved in text for future generations. The story you're about to read was written by Hardy near the end of his life in 1910 with the aid of his daughter Fanny. He'd taken meticulous notes in his journey back in 1859, but more than 50 years later, Manley could tell the story of the trip to his daughter in fine detail. His memory was exceptional. In the 1800s, fur trapping was an important source of income that allowed a select few, those who were tough enough and willing to endure the extreme conditions, to make a decent living. Times were tough, and people did what they had to do to survive. Trapping methods, though ingenious in many ways, were far less developed than they are today. As a modern trapper, and this is something that I put in here for people who were not familiar with trapping that, that may be reading this book, I, I do like the idea of getting um, trapping books, uh, making them available to a broader audience. However, I am concerned with people thinking the wrong thing about what we do as trappers uh, it, by reading something from the 1850s and assuming that that's the way we do business today, which, uh, as you'll see when you read this book, it's not. (laughs) Uh, As a modern-day trapper, I can attest that the tools, regulations, and common practices of today's trappers are very much different than they were 150 years ago when this story was written. 
In some instances, while describing his trapping experiences, Hardy mentions situations that might be disturbing to some readers. These include animals pulling off a foot to escape a trap, breaking teeth while fighting a trap, or death as a result of exhaustion and fighting being caught. Even as a trapper today, such mentions in this story make me a bit uncomfortable. As Hardy states in the text, trapping, like war, is cruel at best. While there are cases where some pain is unavoidable, I contend that trapping does not have to be cruel, and modern methods have addressed many of the animal welfare issues encountered in Hardy's day. Advances in trap design and trapping methods have greatly minimized foot damage, swelling, and potential pain. An animal quote-unquote chewing out or footing is very seldom heard of these days. Humane quick-kill body grip traps are now common, and snares can be designed to kill quickly or restrain the animal without injuring it. Used properly, today's traps generally fall into two categories, restraining devices or humane quick-kill traps. State and federal agencies have devised best management practices, and the same traps used by fur trappers are commonly used to capture wildlife for relocation as part of species restoration projects. In the interest of retaining the authenticity of the original text that Hardy wrote, I've opted not to edit any of it. Therefore, you will read some observations about animals and traps that might be uncomfortable, potentially disturbing, and shed a negative light on trapping for some folks. I hope that readers will interpret Hardy's words in the context in which they were written, appreciate their historical value, and recognize that they do not reflect modern trapping methods or practices. While originally printed in 1910, this story was reprinted as a chapter in William B. Crone's 2005 book, Manly Hardy, 1832-1910, the, the Life and Writing of a Maine Fur Buyer, Hunter, and Naturalist. The book also contains a detailed biography of Hardy, many of his other writings about Maine fur and big game species, and more of his personal experiences. I highly recommend picking up a copy if you can find one. Only 15 or so years later, the book has become increasingly difficult to find and is now quite expensive. In fact, it's about 100 bucks if you, if you can find a copy. In reprinting the Fall Fur Hunt story, I hope to make this history more widely available, particularly to fellow trappers who share my love for stories of the past. Enjoy. All right, so that's the, the introduction, and I think we'll do a little bit here on uh, the start of the trip, and then we'll fast forward probably to uh, building the cabin, because I think that's some pretty awesome stuff. Maybe we'll do a little bit on the deadfall traps, the log traps that they used, because that was pretty ingenious. Um, we're gonna we're not gonna read everything here, um, and maybe some of the encounters with Indians. I thought that was that was uh, something that just uh, it was amazing. I thought it was amazing. So we'll start with we'll start right at the beginning. Let's get into it. Chapter one: The journey into the woods and the building of the home camp. In the spring of 1859, now this, I'm going to stop, I might stop once in a while and just give you a little bit of commentary. So <laughs> you buy the book and you won't get the commentary, but uh, just a little heads up. Manly was 27 years old, 20, I believe he was 27 years old at the time of this uh, story. So just think about that in, in the same context as well with uh, the, the adventure that, that these guys took on and all the knowledge that they already had in woodsmanship skills back in their 20s. A young man named Rufus B. Philbrook came to sell his spring hunt to my father. Now the spring hunt, the fall hunt, the winter hunt, that these were, that they would, they would call these hunts, but they were basically guys going out in the woods for months at a time trapping. And uh, they would hunt, they would also kill moose and bear and sell their hides as well. 
So, but the but they typically said uh, by selling your hunt was coming back and selling fur, essentially. He had been hunting alone at Allagash Lake and had been quite successful. Although entire strangers, we took a mutual liking to each other. And on his telling me that he thought a good fall hunt could be made in the vicinity of Cockamagamic Lake and inviting me to go there with him, I agreed to go, and it was arranged that we should start as early in September as we could. We did not see each other again, but by correspondence it was agreed that he should meet me on September 6 at a point about halfway to Moosehead Lake. He joined me as agreed, and a 70-mile stage ride from Bangor landed us at Greenville at the foot of Moosehead where we both had canoes. Our canoes were of birch bark, as no canvas ones had then been made. The next morning found us in our canoes and outfit on the steamer Ferry of the Lake, Captain Robinson, bound for the northeast carry at the head of the lake 40 miles from Greenville. This carry is so-called to distinguish it from another some two miles to the west called Northwest Carry. Northeast Carry is two miles long and extends from Moosehead Lake to the west branch of the Penobscot River. A space two rods wide had been cut through the spruce and fir growth and a crude railroad built by laying sticks hewn on two sides on cross logs and filling in between with poles. The rails were placed just far enough apart for the flanges of a low car wheel to go outside of them. Over this road, freight was hauled by a pair of oxen, provided the oxen, which ran loose, could be caught, and the driver, who lived in a log camp at the other end of the carry, did not happen to be busy at other work. While crossing here in 1857 and 1858, my partner, the late Hiram L. Leonard, maker of the famous Leonard Rods, and myself were obliged to carry our canoe and outfit on our backs, as the railroad was then out of commission. We're going to fast forward uh, a little bit through the details of travel. Breakfasting before day, we were loaded and ready to start at sunrise. As soon as the dead water ended, the water was so low that, with our loaded canoes, we were obliged to get out and wade and drag them, while the explorers, having only their packs, were soon out of sight. All day from sunrise to sunset, we waded and sacked. In many places, after picking out the large rocks with our hands and shoveling gravel with our paddles to make a channel, it took all three of us to drag a canoe to the next place where it would float. In some places, we'd have to wade to the waist to get to the bow, which was ground. At Pine Stream Falls, which is usually a smart pitch to run, and where bateau had been swamped and men drowned, there was so little water that we had to drop the canoes down with a line. I learned that lately, when he was writing this in 1910, the raising of the dam at the foot of Chisunkuk has backed up the water so as to flow these falls out. Night found us a half mile below Pine Stream Falls, having worked 14 hours to get about 12 miles. We were so tired that as soon as supper was over, wet as we were, we lay down in the alders without attempting to pitch a tent or pick a bow, and neither of us knew any more trouble until daylight. During the journey, Manley mentions a little bit about the background on his partner, Rufus Philbrook. He says, I found my partner a nice, clean fellow, never using either tobacco or liquor. His father had kept what was known as the Philbrook Shanty, a stopping place for tote teams and lumbermen on the Namakana Supply Road. His mother had been left a widow with three small boys and one girl. They were 12 miles from the nearest village with only one shanty in between. Soon after her husband's death, one of the boys died of the smallpox, and I have seen his little grave in the woods. This resolute woman did not give up, but hiring a man to do the out-of-door work, she for years kept the place in summer, scarcely seeing anyone, while in winter on some days she cooked for from 10 to 40 men a day. As the two boys grew larger, they helped as they could. Rufus began to hunt very early, as there was game close to the farm. 
A noted hunter, Jim Lyford, when he passed in and out, used to teach him how to trap. And on one occasion, finding the family sick, Lyford gave up his hunt and stayed some weeks, cutting the wood and helping till the sick had recovered. When a mere boy, Rufus joined an older hunter and went on a hunt to the Restigouche in Kedgewick, being gone nine months, that's up in New Brunswick. As there was not a school within 12 miles, the mother did the best she could to educate them at home. Rufus went one term to the Foxcroft Academy, paying his way by the skins and the bounty on bears he caught near home. A short time before we started, he had bought a place in the village of Brownville and had moved his mother and sister Sarah out among neighbors. Calling at the house in 1861, I saw the book Sarah had been studying and could see by the thumb marks that she was well advanced in algebra and Latin. Sometime in the 60s, Rufus removed the family to Minnesota, and after hunting a couple years, settled down to farming, while Sarah, after teaching in San Francisco, married a school teacher, and when I last heard of her, was living in Arizona. The Bangor and Aroostook Railway now runs within a few miles of their old place in the woods, and the pond and the mountain west of it are now known as Philbrook's Pond and Mountain. Now the young men, a little ways down the journey, are trying to get through a huge area where there was an old log drive the year before that had been abandoned presumably due to low water and there were tons and tons of logs all over the stream they're trying trying to get through with their canoes though the weather looked bad we began early to carry our stuff to the outer edge of the logs in loading one man had to hold the canoe while the other put in the load as the sea was rising and the logs acting lively after getting loaded it was some two miles diagonally across the lake to get under the shelter of the highlands it began to rain as we started, and the sea increased to heavy white cap swell, and we had to quarter so much that it must have been two hours, or at least four miles, before we made the land. Long before this, the rain changed to snow, and it snowed so fast that we often lost sight of each other. Remember, this is in September. But at last we got together under the lee of the land and kept company until, on coming to the leeward of the first island at the head of the lake, we smelled smoke. It was the smell of burning muck rather than a wood fire. Philbrick suggested Indians, and as I was more used to them, it was decided that I should land. I landed in the smoke which lay over the water, and in order not to surprise them, said, Que? which is in Indian, how do you do? But getting no answer advanced, only to find a fire burning deep in the mucky soil, probably left weeks before by St. Francis Indians, who camped here to get rid of mosquitoes while hunting moose. Now let's fast forward to camp building. We found we were about half a mile from the head of the lake, and on looking round discovered quite near us as good a chance to build our camp as we were likely to find. There was a fairly level spot about 20 yards from the lake, with a mixed growth of spruce, maple, and beech rising behind, and a high hill just back of that. We could have our camp timber and firewood uphill of us, and although rather a risky place to build on account of the danger of the camp smoking, we concluded to try it. Now they say smoking because they had no traditional wood stove or chimney so they had to build a rock fireplace inside the camp and a wooden chimney which is pretty fascinating september 15 we began to build a camp to be 14 feet by 10 inside we worked steadily for three days our tools were axes a draw shave and a small auger we built a half pitch camp about 10 feet high in center five feet at one side and running down to two feet at the head of the berth and there's actually a drawing of this camp in, in the book. Our berth was six feet each way with timber at the side and deacon seat in front. A deacon seat was a long uh, bench that usually ran the length of a, a cabin 
Usually they were popular in the lumber camps where there were tons of guys staying in one camp. Then four feet for fireplace, leaving four feet behind for wood, etc. This left four feet between the side of the berth and the wall where we stored our barrel of hard bread and another barrel wherein was our flour and sugar. Above we made wide shelves by boring and driving in supports for them. We dug a hole for our potatoes to keep them from freezing. Our camp was covered with four foot white cedar splits and our berth was sealed up at the sides and overhead with smooth shaved cedar. Where our fire was to be, we dug up every particle of moss and scurf down to hard clay and carried it away. And then, after digging a trench about a foot square through the center out to the open air and lining and covering it with flat rocks to try to give a draft, we brought in gravel and pounded it down for a fire bed. The rest of the camp outside the fireplace was floored with split fur, smoothed with an axe. Over the fireplace, we built up a smoke, smoke hole or log chimney. This we made of spruce sticks about six inches in diameter. We first notched them and fitted them together and then marked them, and one handed them up while the other placed them. Afterward, to make it carry smoke better, we nailed square sticks in the corners so as to project some four feet above, and by nailing on wide splits, increased the height of our chimney. Also, afterward, we put on a set of rib poles outside the other roof and put on a second roof of splits leaving a six-inch airspace so that it would not smoke when covered in snow. We made a nice door with a good latch. Lastly, we gathered soft moss and with blunt wedges chinked every crack. One who has never tried it would not believe how many bushels of moss it takes to chink a camp. At Daggett Pond, some 14 miles from our camp, are rocks which the frost has broken with straight cleavage so that one can get them from 2 to 6 feet long and from 6 to 15 inches square as smooth on the sides as if hammered. The first time we went there, we got two of the right size and length for side rocks, or hand irons, and one some three feet long, two feet high, and six inches thick for a back, and carried them home. This last was so heavy that it was a load for us both when we carried on a hand barrow up from the cabin. We found that our draft was perfect, and our camp never smoked once, no matter how wind or weather was outside. We made a nice bed of fir boughs, and I've never felt so rich and perfectly satisfied as after we moved in and had everything arranged. For cooking tools, I had a 10-quart pail for water, into which were nested deep tin plates made to fit, a 4-quart pan for baking, bread making or to serve stew in, a 4-quart pail of Russia iron made largest at the top with riveted iron ears, a 2-quart tin pail to nest inside 3-pint dippers of straight handles made to fit each other. And he goes on and on in the details in, inside the camp. But you get the idea. Pretty pretty amazing that, that you could build a camp like that in just a matter of uh, a few days with uh, very minimal tools or and, and equipment or anything else. Now we'll get into making of the traps. So these guys, as you might imagine, if you it's the 1850s and you have nothing but what you can carry out into this remote country, you're not going to be hauling a bunch of steel. And there weren't very many decent steel traps to begin with, as you'll see when you read more about hardy trapping beavers and otter and rats. And yeah, he he loses a lot. Let's just put it that way. Um, it just they didn't understand drowning sets. They didn't have really the equipment to make drowning sets. They didn't obviously didn't have. This was uh, 90 years before the Conibear trap, <laughs> so. Um, it, they didn't have very many steel traps. They they had a few for bears and then and then a few for for water animals, 
but the majority of their traps that were set on land were actually trap. They didn't set them; they made them. These were traps they built, and he called them log traps. They're what we would call deadfalls. So I'm going to read this to you, and and you're going to have to look in the pictures in the book. There's a couple of pictures of these log traps that will give you a better visual on kind of what they look like. I had a hard time visualizing them until I read through a couple times and and actually looked at the pictures, but he's going to explain here how they made them. As the traps were intended for use only this one fall, they were made as follows. A tree about three inches in diameter, a spruce if one could be got, was cut about 18 inches taken from the butt and limbs trimmed from the rest of it for five feet or so. The piece cut off was hewed up sharp for a space of eight inches in the middle. This was the bed piece. It was firmly bedded in the ground, sharp edge uppermost, and back of it two stakes about an inch through were driven down about eight or ten inches apart, while another was placed in front. The fall was then laid above it, the bushy top having been left on to prevent its rolling. Then five chips, usually of fur, cut some 18 inches long by six wide and sharpened at the end, were driven in firmly, two on each side so that close the edges touched, back of each of the two back stakes, the rear chips approaching each other closely enough for the fifth chip to close the space between them. Then the weights, usually cut from striped maple, as that is heavy yet easily cut, were notched and laid on the fall, the other ends being on a stick, in order that they might not freeze down. Sometimes small sticks with flat rocks placed upon them were used as weights. The bait sticks were eight inches long and as large as one's little finger with a fork at the inner end to tie the bait to, and with the outer end flattened on top. The standard was four inches long, a round stick of the size of the bait stick with the edges cut or snipped off at both ends so that it would cant easy. When the trap was set, the bait stick was placed at the outer end of the fall that the animal might get the whole weight on him. After setting, a handful of boughs or a piece of decayed wood was placed over the top of the trap to keep the Canada Jays out. Traps for Fisher were made in nearly the same way, only very much larger and stronger, and where it was possible they were made by cutting into a hollow stub or into a fir tree, which are often hollow, no stakes being used, and using a large fall cut down at the end to fit the hole in the stub when placed in endwise. The solid backing is used because fishers are very apt to tear out a backing made of splits instead of going in at the front of the trap. We made these traps but did not set or bait them as it was too early in the season. Alright, we are going to go forward quite a few days, um, actually probably a couple, three weeks in the trip, and Hardy's pretty much keeping a daily diary so you hear about what the conditions are and what goes on every day. Um, this is October 17th, and the guys have most of their trap lines, or a lot of their trap lines, all set out. They're catching fur. They've caught at least uh, one bear, if I can remember correctly, and a pile of muskrats, maybe a beaver or two, and uh, they're, they're pulling in the marten as well. And this is where they have a meeting and encounter with uh, some Penobscot Indians that are coming onto the trap line. So I thought this was quite interesting. Monday, October 17. Snowed last night. This morning went down to the lake to look at our traps on the sis. At the foot of the lake we saw a mink running on the logs. And just as I was about to fire, 
he jumped upon something covered with snow, which I saw was a canoe that had been carried to the outer edge of the logs the night before, and was now covered with snow. As I could not fire shot without danger of spoiling the canoe, I waited until he got down among the logs. I fired just as he stood with his forepart showing above a log. The shot cut a path in the snow where he had been, but he dodged at the flash, and although I called for him, we did not see him again. On turning over the canoe, we saw by the headboard lashed to the middle bar that the owners were Indians, and a large bag of steel traps told why they were there. we just got across the logs to the sandy shore when the bushes opened, and an old man and very lame Indian appeared. He'd heard my gun and had come to see who it was. I was not sure whether he was Penobscot or St. Francis, so after the usual, Quah, how do you do? I said, Penobscot? Yeah, see. Si. Name? Brassaw. Captain? Yeah, S. Do you know me? After a long searching look, he said, Yeah, see. Si. Why devil you don't stay at home long old Jonathan? My father's name was Jonathan, so I had no doubt but he knew me, though how he did was so was a puzzle, for he had not seen me since I was a small boy. I think, however, that he had heard at Chisuncook that I was at Cockmagomic, and my speaking Indian to him told him who which of the two I was. I asked him who was with him. His answer was, Boy? How large boy? Some boy. He led the way to a little shed camp of spruce bark, which we had occupied when there before. Here I found John Brassaw, or Francois, a man weighing over 200, a good hunter, and one of the best boatmen on the river. John at once welcomed me, and then I found who I was up against. Instead of the old man being Captain Brassaw, the term captain being about the equivalent for chief, whom I had known when I was a boy, this was old Brassaw Francois, Peneus, the father of John Francois, as in those days among the Indians the son always took for his last name the first name of his father. I thought this was pretty interesting because I noticed the same thing in uh, in that Fort Yukon area when I went trapping up there with Jim and looking at all the the names of the old uh, natives that were had trap lines in, in that entire area. There was a lot of uh, first names as last names. I, I asked Jim about it and he, he told me the same thing that, that Hardy states in the book here is, is that was very common to take um, take your father's name, uh, first name as your last name and so on. Old Brassois Peneus, called Francois by the Whites, was the very worst man in Patapscot tribe, and I knew every hunting man in it. Of course, he, uh, Hardy and his father knew these guys because they bought fur from all of them. Old Peel Pole, i.e. Peter Paul, was a close second, but after that there was no one who could begin with him for rascality. I could fill quite a book with his devices to cheat. In those days, beaver skins were always sold by the pound. It was rulable to leave in the middle of the skin what was known as a saddle. This was a piece of flesh as large over as one's hand, lying between the skin and the true body meat. It usually comes off with the skin and is afterward fleshed off. It is perhaps an eighth of an inch thick and would add an ounce or two to the weight of the skin. Old Brassaw used to cut a piece of thick sheet lead, a little smaller than the so-called saddle, and with a long knife loosening on one side of the saddle, from the skin under it, would detach it except at the edges, and slip in his plate of lead, closing down the saddle over it. When the skin was dry, the lead would bend with it, and there was no possible way of detecting the fraud but by cutting through the saddle. But this did not satisfy old Brassaw. 
He would lay his beaver skins with the fur side up, and with a bottle of oil in one hand and a sheath knife in the other, he would plow furrows through the fur with the knife and dribble in oil, following it with sand sifted in. The oil would stick the sand close to the pelt, and the fur would close over it, so that it was very hard to detect. My father, who used to buy nearly all the furs brought in by the Indians, detected this, although I rather think that he had at first a hint from the other Indians. If old Brassaw had only lived later and been a New York broker, he would have taught them ways of watering stock which they never dreamed of. A photograph of old Geronimo as he looked in 1886 when he held the council with the General Crook at Funnel Canyon, Gannon, would be as good a picture of Brassaw Peneus as if he had himself sat for it. He was a drinking man and the most profane man in the tribe, while John was temperate, did not swear, and was a good, clean man. At first, old Brassaw began to swear at me for being on his hunting ground. He'd hunted the ground before I was born, had only left it a few years to grow up. There would be trouble if we did not leave. After he'd finished, I told him that if he hunted here so long, he ought to be satisfied, that if he had left the ground for several years, he had no claim on it, and that we had come to stay. Then he changed his tactics. He would set his traps between ours and would plague us a great deal. I told him to go ahead. John talked to him in low and Indian, and then he said, Suppose you lose him something. And you said, Damned Indian, he stole him. You got him plan? A plan is uh, what they would refer to as a map. Or we would refer to as a map. They called them a plan back in the, those days. I got Philbrook's plan and we sat down cross-legged to look at it. I found that, although he could not read, he not only knew every pond and stream, but could tell me the township and range in most cases, as he had been a guide for white timber explorers. I showed him where our trap lines were. Seeing that the one on Baker Lake Carry crossed the brooks above Francis Lake, he said, You found beaver there? Yes. Now, suppose you give me that line. Leave beaver alone. We trade. I told him that we had eaten one of those beaver, and that another was probably then in our trap. Beaver poison, he said. You eat, maybe you die. Before this, he had showed me where he had cut his knee, and it had separated and made him lame. I said, you old man, been eat great many beaver, poison blood, that make your knee sore, by and by you die. He looked at me sharply, and said, ugh, ever you see anybody don't die? conversation seemed to please him and he dropped the subject of our giving up our line to him then he began again we got bloke broke trap you swap good trap for our broke trap we trade on refusing to do this he said you got him file yes suppose you lend him file maybe we mend our camp was so hidden that it would be only by chance anyone could find it but i'd anchored a small spruce bar out opposite a mark and had been carrying out all the camp waste and dumping it there to toll fish so that we could catch them for bait. I told John, who I knew had been trying to keep the peace, to go up the west shore till he saw the spar and then land and find our camp. I told him where he could find the key to our chest hidden in the moss chinking, that in the chest were two files and they could have one of them, that we should be gone two days and they could stay in our camp and live on our provisions while we, they carried on the Baker Lake carry. They could have got on good ground by going up the Sis and across to Allagash Lake by much shorter carries, but they preferred the nine-mile carry to Baker Lake, and we agreed not to extend our line any further. So we said adieu and parted good friends. 
My telling them where the camp was proved, as we afterward learned, to be the means of saving the lives of both of them, when they must have frozen to death but for the knowledge of this refuge near them. I really felt badly for them to be obliged to make the nine-mile carry, but by all the unwritten laws of the woods, both of whites and Indians, we owned the ground we had occupied. If we had found any new spots on any beaver dam, and the name of any hunter or the totem mark of any Indian on such a spot, we should have respected their ownership as any one would, would a marked bee tree. But the country was fairly ours, and it was our right to hold it. As Rufus was not acquainted with Indians, he worried because they were going to our camp. But I felt sure, although one of them was the greatest rascal in the tribe, that they would use our things well, for I'd much rather trust two strange Indians than two strange white men. I'd been among Indians all my life, and in the winter we often, in my boyhood, had a great many more Indians than whites for neighbors, yet I had never known an Indian, when sober, to steal anything. An Indian might lie to you and cheat you as badly as a white man, but he'd never steal from you. So I thought that was a pretty fascinating encounter because it, it was a unique time when there were still Indians roaming the woods back then, um, both the Indians from the Penobscot tribe down uh, along the in that Bangor area, as well as Indians from uh, from New Brunswick coming in uh, from that whole in that St. Francis Lake area. So that was pretty cool and pretty awesome to see how uh, those guys interacted. You'll also see later in the book how the the young trappers interacted with the lumbermen as well and different logging camps and stuff going on up there. Uh, lots and lots of stuff in this book. It's only, like I said, 109 pages, but there is lots of adventure, lots of unique situations, and uh, just awesome history. Love it. Love it. And I hope you do too. So all you do is, I'll have a link in the show notes here, but you go on Amazon and type Fall, a fall fur hunt in Maine. A fall fur hunt in Maine. Um, you might even get it by searching Manly Hardy, M-A-N-L-Y. Let me see if I can pull that up. Um, or probably just something as simple as fall fur hunt will get you there. Let me check and make sure. Oh, I love technology. Manly Hardy will get you to the book and just simply fall fur hunt will get you to the book as well. So you should have no problem finding it. $9.95. If you're a Prime member, you get free shipping on that. So that's my ask. Buy the book and leave a review on Amazon. I would greatly appreciate it, guys. Um, and with that, let's get into the Cots Bros message of the week. And again, Cots Bros are still in the market for glands, caster, and skunk essence. They're particularly paying a premium for large quantities of fox and bobcat glands. Go to cotsbros.com for pricing. You can uh, go to the About section of the site and down to the blog. Click on that. You're going to see a brand new blog post with uh, it's titled uh, Dollar Signs, Glands, Essence, Caster, and Carcasses Wanted. And Kyle has an update there with all the prices and what they're looking for. Uh, there's a lot of items that they once they reach the inventory they need, they're going to stop buying them. And he'll update that and let you know. So get on that if you're producing large quantities of uh, any particular uh, caster essence. Um, if, you, if you're getting a, a pile of fur or you know a fur buyer... Um, or, you, or you're skinning fur for people and you have a chance to collect glands, it's a great opportunity to add a little bit of uh, money to the fur check. So 
With that, guys, thanks again for everything, and it's great to have you here. Always can contact me, jrodwood at gmail.com, J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com. Until next time, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping. We'll catch you on the next episode.